This is the Turf Dudes podcast brought to you by Heralds. Our Turf Dudes are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there. Topics focus on turf health, nutrition, control solutions, and the latest in academic research. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. Send your questions to at TurfDudes on Twitter or by email to TurfDudes at Heralds.com. TurfDudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S. This is your host, Jack Harold III. In today's episode, sponsored by Syngenta and recorded live at the New England Regional Trade Show and Conference, Dr. Raymond Snyder, Director of Agronomy at Harold's, meets up with Dr. Michelle DaCosta, Associate Professor of Turfgrass Physiology at UMass, and Dr. John Iguajado, Assistant Professor of Turfgrass Pathology at UConn. They're talking about what to expect for 2018 summer stress. Appreciate you guys being here. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. It was a really nice opportunity to, to be part of this. So Yeah, thanks for having us. Excellent. Well, real quick, why don't you guys, each of you, give us just a little bit of your specialty and your background at your, your respective uh, universities. Sure. So I'm, a, I'm an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts. And so I've been there for about 11 years now. And so my specialty is in uh, turfgrass physiology. Turfgrass physiology. And so most of my work is related to kind of uh, stress management. Um, and most of it, being in Massachusetts, most of it is related to either kind of winter injury mitigation, trying to understand mechanisms of how grasses survive winter stresses. But we also do quite a bit on kind of summer stresses as well, whether that's managing for heat or drought or things like that. Excellent. So. Good. Um, I, uh, I'm the uh, turf grass pathologist at University of Connecticut, and uh, so you know most of my uh, program is really focused on managing uh, the health of annual bluegrass. Uh, being in in the New England area, uh, annual bluegrass is kind of one of those species that we just uh, we love to deal with, gotcha. and uh, and so it's uh, unfortunately it's, it's susceptible to a lot of diseases, and it gives me a lot of opportunities to do a lot of work with. Uh, Diseases like anthracnose, dollar spot, summer patch. Um, so I, I focus a lot on cultural management of those diseases and even cross over into, into some cold tolerance work that I've been fortunate to work with my wife on. Working on together. And, uh, and, uh, and, and also doing some renovation, fairway renovation work, uh, trying to convert annual bluegrass to more sustainable species like creeping bent grass. So of the two of you, who has the best summer stress strategy or is it a combined hybrid strategy between the two of you? I would say hybrids. Nah, right? I, definitely, no? <laughs> I definitely have her beat. No. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, it's different because we're kind of approaching some of the questions a little bit differently. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's got the sound agronomics. I have to bounce a lot of things off being the physiologist and trying to make sure like the things that we're talking about make sense to gotcha, kind of gotcha. the turf grass manager. Good. So yeah. it would be a nice blend to have each of the two of you That's right. here, here this morning. Excellent. So when we're talking summer stress, you know, give, give me that period. When does it start? When you know what? When should we be most focused? Well, when does preparing for summer stress begin? <laughs> it's a better question. Yeah, I think that would be good. So obviously, it's going to depend regionally uh, or where you're located at. But I mean, I think in general, for us up here in the Northeast or New England region, I think preparation probably begins into April and May already. Thinking about what the strategies are and. Uh, just as kind of thinking about things, that's probably when you have some really good opportunities to kind of prepare, but also some opportunities to p potentially um, 
do things that might make the turf more stressed in the summer. So it's a really critical time period. So even as early as April? Yeah, I mean, for us, I think up. May for sure, for us, I would say. You know, it, it, it's always challenging in New England because, you know, we, we really get kind of our, I would say our peak summer stress really kind of hits around mid-July and, and, okay. and into, into August. And, you know, being in New England where the weather is uh, day by day, you know, sometimes we have a, a, a spring where it's, you know, like, like this year where we're getting, uh, you know, almost a, a foot of snow in, in many parts of the, the region. Well, here we uh, are here talking about summer stress. We've got yeah. a nor'easter bearing <laughs> exactly. down on us. You know, everyone's worried about right. snow and cold. Right. So. Right. so we'll yeah. go from a, a situation like this where it's cold and turf is dormant to, um, you know, to, to the heat when it just kicks in in, in, in uh, late June and July. And so, you know, sometimes we don't get a great opportunity to really get the plants, you know, really acclimated and growing and prepared for summer stress so that... You know, that springtime and, you know, kind of managing that can be a real challenge for a lot of folks. What are those environmental conditions that are the, the classic uh, summer stress type of conditions? What are we talking about in terms of temperatures, daytime, nighttime, humidity? I mean, set that, set that uh, scenario up for me. Uh, in, in terms of when we, you know, the, the types of stress that we deal with, um, you know, I think it, it, it's quite variable throughout the region, obviously. I mean, uh, from, from Maine down to... Uh, the metropolitan New York area, you can have you know, some pretty dramatic differences. But you know, down in in, in uh, Southwest Connecticut near New York City, there Greenwich, um, you know, those folks will you know they, they can definitely have stretches in in July and August where uh, you know daytime temperatures are in the high 90s, uh, nighttime temperatures in the in the upper 60s and 70s, and and those are stressful conditions. Um, What's the most critical? Is it the daytime or the nighttime temperatures that? You know, the alarm bells should start going off. Hey, I, I need to be careful. I, I would definitely say the nighttime temperatures. Uh, you don't get the opportunity uh, with those high nighttime temperatures. You, you don't get an opportunity for those soil temperatures to recover. And, and, and when those, you know, what, what almost, and, you know, I think Michelle would agree with this, you know, um, as those soil temperatures are very high, you know, that's when you really see the stress accumulating. And that's when we really start to see diseases like anthracnose, some of those stress-related diseases really start to take so off. As, you know, what's happening to the plant as a yeah. physiologist so, with those high nighttime temperatures, high soil temperatures? Right, and so the disease, diseases obviously come in, but there's been a lot of research over the last 20 years to, to really, especially for cool season grasses, to try to identify kind of this temperature range. And so, as John said, as soon as you start getting those night temperatures up above, let's say, 70 degrees, where it's impacting kind of this the soil temperatures, we know pretty well that with our cool season grasses that as soon as your soil temperatures start kind of sustaining above 70, 75 degrees, you start to see decline in the cool season grasses. It has the most impact on kind of root health. And so, of course, if the roots start to go soon after that, they're not going to be, they're not going to take up water and nutrients in the same manner. Um, and of course, it's going to impact it's the plant's ability to combat diseases, right? And so, um, so we feel pretty comfortable with, with at least that, where once you start getting above, especially soil temperatures, and especially when your night temperatures are not cooling off, the plant is really kind of keeping its metabolism really high. And so, of course, on top of that, you have you know, mowing stress, low, low mowing heights, and all of these other things that are impacting health that are really critical. Is there a, so 70 degrees, nighttime, soil, air type temperatures, is there a number of, of uh, is there differences between the plants, the bent grass or the, the poa that, 
reacts differently or has less tolerance? Well, we normally see, and John can talk a little bit more about the POA, we don't have like a set number of like days, right? Um, and a lot of that is going to depend on some of that preconditioning that occurs and what's the health of the plant before it goes into these days. You have scenarios that could really impact. Um, so let's say you have very high humidity, you have high soil moisture, or you have a lot of rainfall. Um, all of these things are going to contribute to kind of more warming of the soil, and so that kind of starts to take away some of the genetics there, I would think. Yeah. Uh, but in general, we see that creeping bentgrass is more tolerant to some of these conditions, but bentgrass, of course, is going to be um, sensitive to, to these sort of temperatures. So you would say, I mean, yeah. we see yeah. the same thing. Do you agree? I yeah. encourage you to agree with your wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, by far. I mean, the... Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the tolerance, the, the environmental stress tolerance, the, the, the disease tolerance that, in, that creeping bentgrass provides over annual bluegrass is uh, certainly um, you know, beneficial and, and, and you know, definitely an advantage to going through the effort to try to maintain that species and encourage that species over annual bluegrass. Gotcha. Now, you said something that I thought was interesting is the, the length of stress or the stress is, 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 is important. But what the plant, how the plant is going into that stress. Right. Talk about setting the plant up for success going into uh, this summer stress environment. What are your thoughts on that? So maybe I'll take a. I'll, let me start. Right. You, you we'll take your roles on that. Maybe cultural practices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know those. So I'll talk a little bit about the physiology, right? So coming into this time period, um, a lot of it's going to depend on environmental conditions. So as John mentioned, temperature is such a huge factor. Mm -hmm. um, but if everything is kind of equal, you know, that May-June time period for us in this region is, is critical. Um, and when we talk about preconditioning, it's trying to ensure, like this is a, a great time period to try to <laughs> maximize the root system, right? right maximize now. root health. Well, in a, in a, once we get out of this, these types of weather conditions that we're in. But into May and June are really critical gotcha. um, because once you hit July, uh, maximizing roots is not really, um, it's, it's going to be very You're hard. Behind You're behind the curve, right. exactly. By that point, the roots are already kind of dying off and being impacted by soil temperatures. Gotcha. So um, things like irrigation and mowing and fertility are super critical during that time period to make sure that the plants are not too lean, right, going into that period, but also not overly supplied with a lot of these things, right? So from an irrigation standpoint, um, the worst thing possibly that could be done from irrigation is always keeping the soil kind of close to field capacity, right? So the plants are not, the grasses are not really uh, going to be adjusted to these kind of conditions where drying, the set surface soil drying, is going to be much more prevalent. And so uh, it's not going to force the plants to, to root, right? Gotcha. To develop a better root system. So, so that's just one example. Lower than field capacity? Yeah, we, um, and that, you know, everything is going to vary depending on what kind of soils people, people are on. But we generally recommend allowing the grass to kind of go under several sort of mild uh, drying cycles, right? Allowing the surface part of the soil to dry, not to the point of stress, obviously. Um, and in that time period that we're talking about, usually the grasses are going to, the temperatures are low enough that the grasses are going to be able to withstand that. Does that imparting that mild stress in, induce something in, physiologically in the plant? Yes, and that so is we triggering see that. rooting mechanisms. That's right. Stress uh, resistance. Yeah. So what we normally see, and this has been shown not just in turf but in other crops as well, where that mild drying induces chemicals to start changing in the plant, some hormones, 
It go, you know, there's signals that are coming out and they're telling the plant, okay, there's not enough water, right, in the surface part of the soil. So the plant's going to reallocate its resources instead of just growing more leaf tissue, leaves and leaves, then it'll allocate some of those resources below ground to build the root system. Uh, and what's been shown is that those plants also start producing other kind of protective compounds, moving around sugars that are going to help the plant to withstand some of those environmental stresses. So we know that that preconditioning is really kind of a almost like providing some immunity, right, in there some respects for that. Guy, yeah. are you taking all this in? I mean, that's great information <laughs> right there. Think about that. Excellent. Now, I would, from I your mean, I would echo, I would echo the, the, the focus on root uh, development at this time of year. I mean, that's, that's certainly the key. And, and as Michelle said, I mean, it's, you know, the opportunity to develop those roots is now, or not now, but soon, um, because as the soil temperatures get up, your root growth drops off. And, you know, she talked a lot about it from the water perspective, but, you know, you know, I also kind of come back and, and from a fertility and a nitrogen management perspective, I think it's also um, important to think about how your nitrogen can impact uh, root health. Um, you know, I mean, if you kind of go back to your, your, your textbook, your, your Turf 101, I mean, we talk about the relationship between nitrogen fertility and shoot growth versus root growth. And, you know, in the spring, we have a, we have a tendency of, of having a lot of natural kind of mineralization that can occur once those soil temperatures get up. And so you can get a lot of flush of growth. Um, so I think it's a, it's a balancing act in terms of um, trying to, you know, a lot of folks, they, they want to push the grass in the spring, right? right? But you got to be very careful about that because, you know, at some point, you know, if you're pushing too much and then you're going to get a release of nitrogen through nitrification on top of the fertility you've just put down, you really kind of contribute to that surge growth. And, and, and that's at a time when, you know, you're going to be forcing that, that foliar growth and you're not going to be maximizing your potential for rooting. Gotcha. Um, so I think, you know, kind of, you know, being cautious about how much fertility you're putting down. You guys have um, any numbers using, for that? Can we pin you down on a, on a number that, you know, our, our guys can go out there and Unfortunately, and I don't think that many people have been able perhaps? to nail a, yeah. a nitrogen uh, fertility uh, <laughs> recommendation yet. But, What's the outlier? But What's I would too say high? this. I would say this. Um, I think that there's definitely differences in species. Um, and so, you know, what I was just talking about, I think is very applicable to something like creeping bentgrass. Um, whereas uh, in annual bluegrass, we've done some work looking at kind of seasonal fertility um, with annual bluegrass as it pertains to anthracnose. And, you know, kind of the, the common belief where we want to try to focus the majority of our nitrogen fertility in the fall. Um, I think that might be true when we're thinking about creeping bentgrass or maybe Kentucky bluegrass, ryegrass. But when it comes to annual bluegrass, um, you know, remember this is an annual, you know, winter annual. It, it wants to grow in the spring and, you know, set seed and everything else. So, you know, I really look at kind of, in terms of managing anthracnose, we see better results in reducing anthracnose, and I would relate that to, to plant health and root mm -hmm. health, when we apply more nitrogen, a greater proportion of that nitrogen in the spring and summer months as opposed to fall. So it's two because different really strategies potentially. Based on the kind of the ecology and the... the what do you the, do if you have a mixed species uh, in your green? Who, who are you trying to favor what do you, well, there? Well, it depends on the population density yeah. and who you want to favor, who right? Who you want to favor. So, you know, excellent, you consider excellent. That. But, um, but so yeah, I mean, I think it definitely varies depending on the species. and, and you Cultural practices? Going into the spring, what you know, what, what, or going into the summer, what are your thoughts on that? 
So I think we've touched on some, right? So I think the, the nitrogen and the fertility, I think mowing height would be another consideration. And, um, Purification, and think, uh, venting, any of those so types certainly. of uh, yeah. practices? In general, I think that, I mean, again, site conditions will vary, but anything that's going to impact uh, the physiology of the grass, right? It all, yep. Sorry, John. It all comes down to the physiology, right? The disease has only come in if the physiology is out of whack, right? Uh, something like that. Yeah, that's right. About physiology. Um, so Let me tell you a little something about temperature and humidity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, which impact the physiology too, but yes, okay, I get that for the pathologist. But um, so, for instance, if your soil conditions are not conducive to root growth, you know, and oxygen is a big part of that, right? And so... Uh, making sure you have good gas exchange going into the summer. Again, you talk about worst case scenarios. You have warm soils, saturated soils, you know, not very much oxygen. And, you know, the grasses at that time period, their metabolism is high. And so, uh, not to introduce respiration here. So, you know, a key process, right? And that Please needs don't. oxygen. What was that? Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, we need oxygen for that, right? Okay. And so, if you don't have enough oxygen in the root zone, then your turf grass health is going to decline even more rapidly. So, anything so. you can do to, to, to minimize uh, in undesirable water conditions, yes. maximize air exchange, oxygen in the root zone, those are the types of things you want to key on. Right, yeah. Promote that. Greg, let's take a let's take a question from the audience here. We got uh, who do we got here? Introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Mike Croyan, and I uh, work with Harold's. I get a lot of questions. You just mentioned physiology of the plant. I get a lot of questions about uh, uh, when to start cutting, or that first cut, that first cleanup cut, and, and what effects it might have on the plant later on down the road. Is there any recommendation you have for timing of that? Is that something your guys ask you? They, hey, you know, when, I'm going to start cutting. When, you know, my first cut's coming up. Uh, what do you think? Usually, we try to discuss um, uh, letting the plant naturally break dormancy right. before cutting it. But it's so hard to to know when that might be, and especially in the month of March with these varying temperatures. So I was kind of concerned about the conditions that might occur later on if you do things a little bit too early, or are you doing any work on that kind of thing, or any recommendations at all. I'm not really aware of any work on that necessarily, but I, I would say, you know, I mean, mowing uh, induces growth, right? So, um, you know, I mean, so the earlier you start mowing, the sooner you're going to start encouraging that plant to start to put, you know, force new tissue and more, more leaf growth. And so, you know, in my mind, you probably, in my mind, I, I think it's somewhat advantageous to try to do that as on the earlier side. Um, however, the... The, the, the balance that you have to do there is that, you know, in some cases in March, we can have some pretty cold temperatures. So if you want to try to maintain from a, from a, from a winter right. stress perspective, you might want to try to maintain that dormancy as long as you can. So if you have something maybe like annual bluegrass, maybe you might want to delay a little bit longer. Whereas if you have more creeping bentgrass that's a little bit more cold tolerant, you know, getting out there and mowing a little bit earlier might might be advantageous in terms of you know starting to get some growth and and, and get new tissue so developing. Spe species specific sounds like in your strategy and again i'm not i'm not this is kind of you know off the top it's not based on on any research that i'm aware of but right, it, yeah. it biologically seems to make sense to me yeah and i'm not familiar with any research i mean i think the goal there is not stressing the plant so not trying to go out and cut too low you know cut too much off at once right uh, and it depends on what you have. Is it green tissue, or are you talking about, you know, is it still mostly dormant tissue? So, um, 
So yeah, but we haven't seen too much major impact from that, at least not off the bat. And most of my guys will be POA bent greens. So you right. have POA doing one thing, you have the bent doing the other. And I was always concerned about just inducing any water uptake in that plant and then having temperatures drag, drop down again into the teens or the 20s. So I was trying to figure out, so there's a lot of, just a lot, a lot of questions though. Yeah. When should I do it? And then yeah. I just didn't know if... And so from the water uptake perspective, you're, it's probably, unfortunately, it's not going to be as impacted by the earliness of mowing. Unfortunately, those roots and the crowns are going to be taking that up regardless of what the mowing, you know. If it's growing and you're having to mow it, that's kind of a second, you know, it's, then it's happening regardless. So even if it's not growing, at least when it comes to annual bluegrass, um, it can take up water. So, um, so that's what at least we see from a winter injury perspective, whereas bentgrass really doesn't have uh, the metabolism really to, to do that. So it'll stay dormant for, for a little bit longer. But so the mowing doesn't seem to, to be impacting kind of that water uptake and potential for injury if the temperatures drop. It's kind of an in, independent. Excellent. Good Thank question, you. Mike. Yeah. Nice question. Morning. Uh, I'm Jeff Simrell with Harold's. I want to hit you with a three nutrients that are often spoken of in terms of cell strength, cell division, potassium, calcium, and silica. Any um, knowledge of positive correlation of any or all of those in terms of plant health and stress resistance? Okay, so the first one was potassium. Potassium, of course. Uh, yeah, so that's one of the nutrients that's associated with many different uh, stress tolerances, summer stress tolerance, winter stress tolerance. Um, and a lot of that is because potassium, unlike some of the other nutrients that are used as part of like plant structure, like nitrogen, for example, potassium uh, really helps to regulate water relations uh, in the cells. Um, and so in the summer, it helps to kind of keep water where it's supposed to be. And in the winter, it's also helping the plants to withstand freezing inside the cells. So I think that there's very good evidence. I think we don't know a lot about how some of these relationships actually work, but we know that there's a positive uh, association with that. So with potassium, do you want to have a steady base in the soil and supplement it with liquid uh, during the summer periods? So I would say a steady source, right, as far as we just want, you know, there's research to show this, but there's, you know, kind of a sufficiency level, right? And you want to be in that, if it's too low, if you're into deficient, um, that's where you have the most impact. We don't really see from a health perspective what too much will do, but there's no additional, you know, benefits once you hit a certain point. So, um, but as far as other sources or whether, you know, liquid or not, I mean, I think that there's some evidence for that and that's kind of outside the scope of what my, you know, we haven't really looked at that, but certainly you want to be in that sufficient range and you need to be there for a while. You can't just find out you're deficient, like, you know, going into winter and you apply all of this and then all of a sudden it's supposed to have some big impact. So, so consistency you measure, is important. Yes, you, consistency. Do you measure that sufficiency level with tissue testing? Is it in... Uh, I mean, I, I think historically potassium has been one that so, where soil testing has been uh, fairly effective. Um, it, it's not as, it doesn't transition as rapidly in the soil. And so I, I think that you can get some pretty good information on soil yeah. testing. But, um, but tissue testing, if that's what people are doing, and, you know, there's no reason they can't use a so, uh, tissue test as well. I, I think Dr. Clark had actually had his value yeah. of, like, so it's like 40 parts per million. And those are based on soil, soil temperature. Or soil, and, and they, yeah, they, I mean, they've seen some, some, some pretty impressive results with maintaining, uh, you know, within that range, 
where potassium actually has as, as a pretty significant reduction of anthracnose. Um, so. I think the key there with the soil testing, especially in the work there at Rutgers has shown this, is if you're going to do the soil testing, make sure you're doing it where the roots are located. So if yes. you have your roots in the top inch or two, that's where you want to be able to take that soil that's test from. It's yeah. really important when you're talking about it, something right. like well, annual bluegrass yeah. in the summer. If there's time, then calcium, silica? Silicon, any Silicon. thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, there, there's a. I mean, We're from seeing a positive perspective, things in other turf species. So, from a disease perspective, I mean, silicon uh, has has some pretty, you know, impressive uh, effects on reducing uh, diseases like gray leaf spot, um, and you know, it's you know speculated that some of that might have have to do with increasing you know cell wall strength and things like this. Um, there's also you know some information that it might be um, you know more than just the cell wall strength, and it might actually be contributing. You know some you know increased plant defense compounds that might be antagonistic to the pathogen as it's trying to penetrate into the host. So, uh, so with, with silicon, there's there's definitely a, you know some good information about you know the relationship of, of that particular uh, nutrient and and plant health. Let me ask you guys a question: Is silicon an essential element? I sometimes it's grouped in with the essential element. Sometimes <laughs> it's left out. What's the consensus amongst your family here? Gee, Honestly, I, mean, we were I don't about know. That. Yeah, we talk about this every <laughs> At the dinner night. table every sure. night. Yeah. Um, it's in, it's out. <laughs> we don't talk about this one, actually. But um, I, for grasses, it seems to be, you know, very important. Whether you would consider it an essential element, I'll leave that to the historians, I guess, to, okay. to develop that. Go. But yeah, but we obviously know in grasses in particular, and not just turf grasses, but most grass species, it's an important element. Uh, Certainly would say it's beneficial. I would yes, definitely, that's what I sure. was going to say. I mean, yeah. I, to me, uh, those are some semantics I don't need to get into, but yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the benefits can't be disputed. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Um, so, and another, I mean, in terms of nutrients, I mean, I think one that, in my mind, that's very important uh, for disease management would be something like manganese. Um, you know, where we see, you know, it's fairly well established where manganese can reduce diseases like take-all patch. Um, we've done some work at UConn where we've seen some beneficial effects um, uh, with summer patch as well. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's an element I think that we need to do a little more research on in terms of, you know, how to, how to maximize that, you know, how to optimize manganese fertility in terms of making sure that it's getting into the plant where it can actually, you know, uh, have the beneficial effects of, of reducing disease. You know, what types of sources can we use? What timings? Does it need to be foliar? Does it need to be foliar or soil? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's some, some research that we're actually looking to do um, uh, at UConn. Excellent. Greg, and then questions from the field here. Introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, hi. Chris Tufts from the Country Club of New Seabury. Um, Oh, uh, seed head suppression and, and uh, growth regulators with root growth and, and how they're, what's going on with that? Helping it, not helping it? Where are you at on that? Uh, I would generally, you know, I actually did a lot of work looking at things like ethafon and, and fluid, you know, Embark and, and, and Proxy, um, with and without things like Primo. And uh, looked at this for many years. And I would say over the course of, of the years that we looked at it, um, there were some years where we saw some definite beneficial effects of suppressing seed heads with something like Proxy or Embark, um, and then continuing that up season long with something like Primo. Um, so where, you know, and presumably, you know, we were, by suppressing that seed head, we were reallocating 
those carbohydrates and those resources to root growth, right? And it goes back to that root growth in the spring, how important that is. Um, so there was definitely years where, where that effect was tremendous and very beneficial at, at reduce, you know, increasing plant health and reducing a disease like anthracnose. Um, in other years, it wasn't as pronounced. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think when, you know, when you look at some of the tools that we have today um, where you suppress seed heads in the spring and, and use maybe like growing degree day models for, you know, things like Primo or Anu, um, where, you know, you can make sure that you're getting more consistent season-long growth regulation in addition to that seeded. I think that can have the potential for improving the consistency of maintaining high plant health and reducing disease. But I definitely think that it's, it is an advantageous strategy to suppress those seed heads. And I would, you know, sometimes folks, you know, ask the questions where, like, maybe they have winter injury and they question, well... You know, should I skip my, my seed head suppressant this year because, you know, I'm trying to recover? In my opinion, and this hasn't been, I haven't done any research on this yet, I mean, I would encourage folks to, to use that growth regulator to suppress seed heads because, again, in my mind, you want to try to maximize those roots and, you know, get those plants uh, that are remaining as healthy as they can as you head into summer. Is there any reason to not try to suppress the seed heads? Are there any unintended consequences of doing that? Or should that just be the blanket strategy to to use that as a cultural practice? Uh, What's the default position uh, uh, on that? I think the, 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 uh, if you don't suppress them, then you can, you can build up a good seed bank to recover from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, in my mind, I, I think it's an, an advantageous approach. Uh, whether you do it, in, you know, I think with, in the case of something like Ethavon, you know, there's, there's research out now where they're so, seeing some pretty... Um, some, some improved results with fall applications uh, of proxy and then followed up in the spring. And, and that seems to uh, kind of make the, the success rate of those spring applications a little greater. Excellent. We've got another question from the audience here. Thank you, sir. Great question. Uh, Peter Salonetti with Harold's. Uh, when preparing for summer stress, is it what's more critical cultural practices uh, airification top dressing that type of thing or chemical applications uh, healthy root zones uh, trying to avoid pythium root rot and all that type of thing what, what would be more critical uh, I mean I, I would for me it, it's it's definitely focusing on the basics Fos focusing on your agronomics your your cultural practices your cultivation your fertility those things have to be dialed in first and foremost. Uh, you know, chemical control, you know, chemical applications like seed suppressants and things like this, I mean, they're, they're providing some benefit, but if you don't have the environment and the cultural practices where you need to maximize root growth, then none of that stuff's really gonna work very much for you anyway. So, I mean, I would, I would definitely encourage people, keep it, keep it simple, keep it to the basics, and then build from there. Excellent, good, good question. Greg, we got any more questions from the audience? Now's your chance. Great opportunity here. Thoughts? I got a question for you guys. What um, what what are the phosphites doing? What are they doing in the plant? What are what, what you know? What, what what is the role of the phosphite? Do we want to? Well, John's done some some work with them from a disease perspective, right? So we know there's benefits. Um, Based we're on we're seeing work. good success with yes. them. So, uh, you, know, you know, is there any defined, you know, role or what exactly are, is this comp compound doing to, in the plant? 
I mean, there's research um, in, in, in not just in turf, but there's research which shows uh, that phosphites um, have been able to upregulate systemic acquired resistance. Um, and this is, you know, this is a, a very significant pathway that influences many aspects of plants. Uh, it impacts both uh, disease and, and, and suppressing disease by, you know, preventing um, uh, pathogens from being able to infect the plant. Uh, but systemic acquired resistance can also have impacts on the abiotic stress. And so, um, you know, I, I see them as a, as a really important component of, of managing annual bluegrass putting greens in particular um, from an anthracnose perspective as well as a plant health. Um, I'm, I'm more familiar with it in the, in the positive attributes in terms of its suppression of diseases like anthracnose and, and pythium. Uh, we even, we've even seen some some suppression, I mean, by no means am I talking about control, but where it will actually suppress the severity of dollar spot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, that may be due to this systemic acquired resistance response or just the, the improved plant health, I, I'm not so sure. So there's a physiological role in the plant in, in as much as there, you know, any potential fungicidal effects, it sounds like. And, it, and right. it's not, and it's not because you're applying phosphorus, it's be this indirect effect on some of the physiology of the plant. Right. And, and in general, as you just noted, it's it's not a nutrient in terms of right. phosphorus inputs. We don't want to use that as our phosphorus source. That is That's in, they're independent of each other. Would you say? That I mean, it's there. It is a, a an incredibly inefficient means of applying phosphorus. Gotcha. Gotcha. Excellent. Greg, question from the yes, sir. Hi, Aaron Narshenbow from National Golf Links of America. Uh, I was at the Westchester seminar earlier this year and I was hearing some uh, research come in that potassium uh, going into winter wasn't going to protect us as much as we thought it was previously from uh, winter damage. And I know Dr. DeCosti has done a lot of work in that area and it kind of clashed a little bit with what I had been hearing about it and what I have seen in the field as well. I was wondering if you had any new things coming out saying otherwise so I think me I, I kind of wonder I don't know exactly you know where it was coming from but I think maybe the the biggest point to make there is if you uh, figure out right before some let's say in October or something like that that you're that you have some sort of potassium deficiency or you're below some sort of level um, applying you know an application at that point will it help Maybe, right? A little bit. But it's not going to give you the same level of protection in the cells going into winter as if you had been kind of, if you have more of a season-long approach to making sure that you're up there already before going into winter. Uh, our cool season grasses, for example, they start acclimating, even though we don't know, you know, we don't think it's getting cold, they start acclimating in the September time period. And so if you're only going to be applying potassium at some high, you know, some level at that point, it's not going to give you the best um, physiological returns if you think about it that way. So maybe that's what the comment was. I'm not sure uh, where, where that is. But, um, but certainly you want to make sure that you're there season long because you're going to get benefits in the summer as well, right, from the water relations and summer stress tolerance as well. So I think that would be the way to take. By no means, I would think that uh, we're saying we're not saying that you're not going to get benefits from it. So you just want to be in that sufficiency range. I think it's just a matter of how to correct it. And I don't know if we have a really good understanding of how long does it take 
uh, to correct that issue in the plant. I'm not sure that we that we know that, um, but certainly the work that others have done, including uh, you know some of the work that was coming out of Rutgers, um, by chance we saw that there was all of this additional winter. Uh, survivability. I mean, their work was being done uh, with Jim Murphy and Bruce Clark at Rutgers from an anthracnose perspective. So they had a really good setup um, to show all of these treatment differences, right? And so, um, well, maybe we shouldn't just rely on a big pulse right before right, winter. Right. Exactly. And, and we have more thing. of a, a balanced approach going into the winter, <laughs> and with some perhaps uh, winter or, or fall inputs to to further supplement what we already Correct. did versus a a single pulse and say, that's it, we're going to be good for the rest of the right. winter. So don't wait until October or November to check that. So that would be the biggest thing. Excellent. Good question there. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Greg, we got one more. Excellent. Okay. Well, we had a great topic, great discussion here. We got the husband and wife team from UMass and UConn talking summer stress at the New England Regional Conference and Show. Any final thoughts, Mr. Uh, Greg Nickel? I think the thing I took away with today is that it physiology starts with physiology. It starts with physiology <laughs> and it ends with physiology. Exactly. Oh I my gosh. That's, that's, <laughs> right? Can I get a is, reference is a for your marriage and family therapist? Because you guys work <laughs> very how, well is together. Is that how you here. work it in the, in the household? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, thanks for joining us Thank with our you. Turf Dudes podcast. Thank you both so much for being here. We know your time's valuable, and we're going to wrap it up and look forward to uh, seeing you again sometime soon. Thank you very much, and thanks to the audience for being here. Appreciate it. Thank Great you. Great questions from the field. Thank you, and good luck for this upcoming season. So. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Turf Dudes. Dr. DaCosta can be reached at mdacosta at umass.edu and Dr. Iguajado can be reached at john.iguajado at uconn.edu. To send Dr. Snyder and the Herald's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments or to be featured on an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com.